0: Hello and welcome to Play, Train, Grow, a podcast that usually asks, what is life like chasing the dream of becoming a professional footballer? Today's episode is completely different. My guest is Jennifer Fraser, PhD. Welcome. Hello. How are you, Jan?
1: Hi, Johnny. I'm great. Thank you so much for having me.
0: No, it's it's the other way around here. Um, your work is centered and focused around bullying. Um, I think it could very well be a game changer in the way that we we approach bullying and we understand it. Um, you know, you've been on an emotional journey, a personal journey that's got you to this point. Um, triggers in your journey that I've sort of read about is students being described as too sensitive to to deal with things. The sort of old-fashioned mentality of bullying that comes with that, and and just give us a little bit more on sort of your background and how you've got to to this moment.
1: Well, what happened was uh I was teaching in a private school in Canada and I was teaching literature, which is what I do in theater. And uh there was just a burbling up of uh students reporting that they were being bullied. And they were being called, you know, effing pathetic and effing retards and effing pussies. Sorry for the bad language, but this is what the these these uh this is the language they were hearing. And And they just, they hit the wall with it. And so because the information came to me, I have a legal duty basically to deal, I have to address it, I have to report. So I reported to the board of the school, I reported to the headmaster, because it wasn't students that were saying these words, it was teachers who were coaching. They're coaching basketball. And so I'm a researcher by training at my PhDs in comparative literature. So what I was trained to do is to take different, different languages, in a sense, different discourses, different ways of thinking. So um, psychology and looking at it with literature or economics or feminism or any of these different things, putting them into conversation, into dialogue out of their silos and seeing how how does the dialogue change when we actually are speaking to each other in these different groups. And so when I was hearing that this was how the students were being spoken to, lots of you know, public shaming, berating, threatening, um, just refusing to answer questions like refusing feedback, ignoring these types of behaviors, privileging some athletes and and making others just sit endlessly on the bench, especially if their mom had spoken up about, you know, alcohol in the room or these types of things. I just kind of couldn't get over it. I mean, they were my colleagues. So, I I went to the research and I was like, well, does, is this bad for kids? Like, does this hurt kids? Like what, what's the deal? I I'm being told by the headmaster, it's just old school coaching and, and they're sorry. And they didn't know that it was hurting the kids. I was like, really? Like, so when I hit the neuroscience, everything changed for me. When I found out what those types of behaviors do specifically to adolescent brains, I, I really, I honestly was just, sickened. I I was so upset. And the reason being, it's the same thing that happened with concussions. We didn't know concussions hurt brains. We didn't know that it could lead to an athlete's death. We thought that it was a badge of honor to get the kid back into game and show the team how tough they are. We didn't know. And it's the same thing, These, these old school behaviors, we don't know how much damage they do to the brain. So I set myself the task of being the person who is going to get that information out there if it's the last thing I do. So I have a book coming out in April. It's called The Bullied Brain. But the exciting thing is, yeah, this hurts brains really badly. It it causes extreme harm. On the flip side, the brain is amazing at healing and recovery. It's um, just like the body. We can have a bone get broken, we can have a torn ACL, and our body gets to work fixing it when we do the right things and we we bring in the scientific knowledge that we need. Same thing with the brain. It's an invisible injury, we can't see it. So we tend to ignore it and call it other things and use old fashioned language like, oh, it's a mental health problem. No, no, it's a brain health problem. And so the second part of the book is, it's the bullied brain, heal your scars and restore your health because we can get our young people as well as ourselves way healthier if we're if we do the right things and we have the information
0: it's great and i think you share the same dismay as me that we don't educate people on the brain as much as we do every other subject on the planet it totally baffles me and i know it baffles you
1: yeah i mean it was a real journey for me. As you said, it was kind of a, an emotional journey for sure. It was also an intellectual journey because, you know, I'm an award-winning teacher. I've been in the business of education for 20 years. I've taught at university college. I've taught at, at international boarding schools with teenagers. I knew nothing about the brain. And so, you know, when I present now to pre-COVID, if I presented in front of a, a room of like, I was brought in to speak to rec center heads in the USA and Florida. So there's 300 guys that specialize in sport. They're sport leaders, sport administrators. I was the only person not in a track suit. So I say to them, everybody, raise your hand. If you can name five parts of the body and what it's essentially involved in. Every hand in the room goes up. And then I said, okay, can you name now for me five parts of the brain and what its essential involvement is? And I'm telling you, there was like a few kind of like uh maybe, um, not really sure. And that's where I started the presentation. And exactly as you say, Johnny, I was just like, we've got to get to know our brains. Our brains are miraculous. They're powerful. They can be brutally hurt and they can be incredibly healed. And we need to know everything about it.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I focus my my whole coaching of football around the brain. I learn different parts of the brain and then I'll tailor it to learning skills or transferring knowledge to skills. And it just baffles me we, we don't educate it. So again, today's focus is it's going to be on bullying, but I think we need to build a bit of foundation into that to help us really sort of understand the, the damage that it causes long-term. So if I was to throw this sort of talking to the brain, a little sort of term about you, How how do you link emotions and memories? Why do they attach themselves so well together? Why do these random shower thoughts appear 20 years after they'd happened?
1: It's a really great question. So, I mean, there's a million things to say, but if I was going to tailor my answer to the short time we have together, I think there's there's two or three key things that we have to talk about. First of all, very important for coaches. the brain learns by making mistakes. So you need to celebrate mistakes, not shame them. If you associate in a a athlete's mind that making a mistake, taking a risk, being creative, um, you know, having a, a, believing that you have a social, emotional empathy connection with another player, but you didn't like these types of things should be celebrated because it's your brain working double time to try and figure something out. So it's, I mean, to get good at something, you have to make a ton of mistakes. Unfortunately, we adults tend to shame children for errors. So just keep in the back of your mind, a one-year-old, a one-year-old will learn how to walk. If it's, if it's, I mean, they just are driven to do it. They don't look to you to see if you approve. They don't, they don't look to their mom. They don't look to their daycare worker. They, they don't care. They are going to stop crawling and rolling around on the floor. They're going to get up on those two legs and they are going to do it with 800 mistakes. They're going to fall. They're going to fall backwards, forwards, hit furniture, you name it. They don't care. By the age of two and three, and certainly by the time they're in the school system, they start to associate mistakes with being in trouble, being a little bit ashamed. They got a red X. They got a mark from the teacher, and the teacher said they they weren't good at drawing. As soon as that dynamic happens, you are not getting a brain trying its hardest anymore. And that's a real shame. So thing number one, we need to celebrate mistakes. The brain learns by making mistakes. Thing number two, in terms of memory and emotion, it's important to understand that our brains process information differently. So if you are feeling calm, if you're feeling safe, if you're feeling mindful, and you're a young athlete, you can take in a massive amount of information and you can organize it. It takes, a, it, it is language-based and it's sequential and it's in your brain and you don't lose it. It's really like, that is the left-hand side of the brain. It's where our language centers are and it's how we articulate things to ourselves and our brain learns. Now, if you create an atmosphere and especially with an adolescent brain, if you create an atmosphere around them that's threatening so lots of yelling lots of put downs lots of shame shame is the is the you could beat a kid up and it would be less damaging to their brain than embarrassing them or humiliating them especially in front of their peers um that that is never going to get that kid to perform at their top level you might cause them to feel afraid and they might play out of fear for short term it's never going to make the great athlete long term never so <clears throat> it's really important to understand that when you traumatize a brain, you make it feel unstable, afraid, ashamed that it doesn't know when the next attack is going to come. They're not processed, they're not listening to you, they're not learning what you're trying to tell them. They're organizing all that information into the um, right hand side of the brain that is not language based. So when you have random thoughts that come up in the shower, you remember that time that your parent did something terrible or said something humiliating to you or your coach or your teacher or or a peer those thoughts come back because they're they're lodged it's like unmetabolized trauma they're lodged in the right hand side of the brain and that's not sequential it's not organized it's not a narrative it's not a story you can tell yourself it's a mess and that's not to say you can't tap into that traumatic part of your brain which is where sensual information gets charged that's why a scent something will bring up a traumatic memory for you. Like people who have PTSD, as we all know, a sound or the smell of something will throw them right back into where they were traumatized, like war or, you know, or abuse or whatever it was. So I think it's really important to remember that in terms of memory and emotion, think left and right and think about, do you want language and sequential narrative thinking and learning and being able to remember if you really want to teach a skill or something like that you really want to be creating a safe calm environment and your your players will learn way better Um, so that that left right piece I think is key for understanding how memory and emotion
0: work a a couple of things that the new world terms would be uh probably something along the lines of of psychological safety on what you're talking about there and especially in relation to mistakes the whole mistakes thing is a, a big thing for me that, that you, you cannot get the best out of anyone not just kids and this isn't just focused on kids but again it's a massive point mistakes are ways of learning and why is it that They become a problem and that probably links to the next bit which would be sort of neuroplasticity and myelination within the brain how how do those two link
1: um so in my book the bully brain on the sections where i talk about heal your scars and restore your health one of the greatest things that I think the book offers, not that it's a great book, but it has within it some amazing neuroscientific information. And the thing I'm most excited to share with you and your people today is that there is a scientist in the United States named Dr. Michael Mersnick. And just by extremely good fortune, I ended up connecting with him. He's He's one of the most important and awarded neuroscientists in the world alive today. And he um, is just a lovely person. So, when I asked him if he could if he could um, write the forward to my book, is what I really wanted him to do. I had a meeting with him. I'd never met him before. We were on Zoom, and so you know I was really really nervous. And I said, you know, I, I was I had this like academic speech, well written and organized. And I realized just looking at him, this is no. I just got to tell him the story. So I launched into the absolute trauma that I went through when. Um, I was dealing with abuse and what it does to kids and, and how it hurt kids that I personally know, including my own son. And I just gave him the sob story version. And after about 10 minutes of that, he was sort of looking at me and then he just went, How can I help you? And so he ended up writing the foreword to the book. And then he ended up, because he's so passionate about this subject, he went through the entire book word for word to ensure that I had gotten a science perfect. And he you know, signed off on that and he corrected things and told me things that you could only know if you really were a neuroscientist, how they think and the language they use and why the research matters in this particular way. So he's just the most lovely man. Well, he and a team of international neuroscientists have developed a program, it's called Brain HQ, as in Brain Headquarters, so www.brainhq.com. And if you go on that site, you can read all the research, which there's hundreds of papers that have independently studied this program. But really what it does is it helps the brain um, perform. So it helps the brain stay really healthy. We can't see it getting more fit and strong and flexible like we can our bodies, but that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. So you can go on that site. It's incredibly powerful for warding off mental health crisis, as well as um, working with very advanced brains that aren't suffering and taking them to the next level. So Harry Kane, for example, I wouldn't have to tell you who Harry Kane is, and Tom Brady, and I probably wouldn't have to tell you who Tom Brady is, but they are some of the few athletes that have gone public saying that they use Michael Merzenich's brain training and it takes their game to the next level. So not only can we use it with our kids, starting at, you know, I don't know, early adolescence and get them to understand, hey, you go to the gym and work out, you go out on the field and work out, you also have to work out with your brain, keeps it healthy, keeps it strong. And it's it's hard work, but you just need to do half an hour a day. It costs next to nothing. And it's these exercises designed by neuroscientists to help us really, you um, do the best we can. And, you know, people like Tom Brady, for him, his brain's 43. I think he's 44 now. He's 44 and he's competing with 20-year-old 20, 20 brains and he's outperforming them. So, you know, it's pretty exciting. And I, I think, you know, as you're you're talking, Johnny, about the future, like the new ways that we think of these things. My big dream, and it's Michael Merzenich's dream, is for us to leave this this framework we've operated in for a long time. I call it the bullying and abuse paradigm. We have to walk out of that framework. It's old, it's outdated, it's useless, and it causes unbearable harm to people, especially our kids. And what I want to do, and this is what the book is about, really, is enter into a new neuro paradigm, a brain-based, brain-informed world like you and I both think is so important.
0: It is, it's vital. And the thing is, though, it's completely different. It's a it's a different perspective on it. So there's going to be cultural aspects to authority that we're probably going to have to break down that comes to mind. There's probably going to be the old-fashioned, you know, I'm mirroring the person that coached me and there's nothing wrong with me. So how how do we get over those sorts of of sentences or, or statements?
1: Yeah, it's really, it's something that I tackle a lot in the book. I really sort of did a deep dive into why is it so hard to change? And why are we so afraid of getting educated about our brains? What, what makes us so nervous about it, really? And why do we keep avoiding it? You know, it's amazing that in the 21st century educational system, we haven't radically changed the way we teach children with the knowledge that we have now about how brains learn and how they work. The outdated model is someone pours knowledge into someone else's head, a coach, or a teacher, and then that person is like, oh, that was the making of me. That knowledge is how I became who I am. And so I'm going to pass my knowledge on to the next person. But that's not really what happened. The greatest learning happens when, as you talked about neuroplasticity, and you talked about myelination. So um, there's a wonderful book. I don't know if you've read this book. It's called The Talent Code. But it's something that you, yeah, you would love that. I mean, that book was written for someone like you. So I'll just go over it super fast. But in the talent code, Daniel Coyle argues, he goes and looks at talent hotbeds all over the world. He looks at sport talent. And he's like, how come in Brazil, this little town keeps producing these incredible soccer players? Or or he goes to Scotland and why do they produce these amazing rugby players over and over again? And what he found was there's three things. There's three important things. Number one is the athlete has to believe in themselves. So again, it goes back to shaming. It goes back to you know, you want athletes that believe that they can achieve and fulfill their potential, whatever that is. It's not, it can't be extrinsic. You can't be doing it for your parents. You can't be doing it to impress your coach or your peers. You have to do it because you believe in yourself. And then that belief translates into what Daniel Coyle calls deep practice. Now, deep practice is neuroplasticity. The fact is, We can change our brains up until the last moment we are on the planet. We have the capacity, depending on what we do, what we think, how we feel, the atmospheres we're in, and that practice we put in, we can make our brains take any kind of shape we want, which is pretty amazing. When you practice something over and over again in creative, new, slightly corrected ways, because you're always working through those mistakes and you're problem solving and you're trying a different way and a creative solution... Every time you do that deep practice, you myelinate your neural networks that you desire. So that's pretend it's for scoring a goal. You, If you keep myelinating, which is a myelin is a fatty substance that goes on a neural network that allows it to change from sort of a country back road into a super highway. It makes the electrical impulses in the brain go 100 miles an hour and it's super effective. So one of the things that they studied was... Um, London cab drivers, and London cab drivers, I don't know if they still have to do this, but back in the day, they had to learn every single street, whether it was, you know, a one-way street, or they had to learn that city and know it like the back of their hand if they were going to get a license. Well, lo and behold, when the neuroscientists looked at their brains, they found that they had the most advanced spatial navigational brains anyone had ever seen. Why? Why? simply because they practice. These London cab drivers weren't different than you and me. You and me could have a brain like that if we put in the work. If we put in the practice, we would have that kind of a myelinated brain. So they've done so many studies like this now, and they understand how our brains change by the things that we do. So in terms of bullying and abuse, it's really important to remember, and it's good for kids to remember and know this, the brain has what's called limited cortical real estate, which means the more I develop the bullying in my brain, if I spent this entire conversation with you, putting you down, making you feel less than, humiliating you, yelling in your face, berating you, you know, getting in your space and making you feel small and threatened, if I did that to you, I would be burning up a lot of areas in my brain that could be things like empathy or uh, flexibility, or compassion or intelligence, you know, if I use my brain to bully, I'm, I'm using up all my cortical real estate to do something that's incredibly destructive and negative. That's my choice, but it's going to really hurt my brain. If I do that, like we tend to think that bullying and abuse hurts the brains of victims. Well, sorry to say bullying and abuse really damages the brains of perpetrators as well. So if you look at somebody, you know, take larry nassar larry nassar who was the uh medical doctor in the u.s who abused hundreds of victims
0: yeah
1: Mm -hmm. he you know if you look at these people or you look at harvey weinstein the big hollywood producer um basically harvey weinstein became a person larry nassar became a person they couldn't have relationships anymore they couldn't care they couldn't love they couldn't be connected. They couldn't have intimacy. They became like broken records. They had to do the same abuse, speak the same words, use the same gestures year after year after year. That's a very broken, damaged, ruined brain on many levels. So I think it's really important for us to understand that if you were trained in an abusive model and you are perpetuating the abuse, you can, it's hard, but you can stop. And the sooner you stop, the better. And you can Take that cortical real estate that's being handed over to something extremely destructive and you can grab it back inch by inch until you practice a different conscious method where you daily say, whoops, caught myself. Or you say to your team, hey, guys, if I so much as use a put down, we're stopping play. It's up to you. I've been trained this way so it's natural and normal to me. I can't help it. My brain is sculpted to behave this way, but yours isn't. So you stop me in my tracks cuz I want to get better. I want to be the best coach ever and I don't want to be harmful. So we have to work together to do this. And you know, kids are amazing. Like <laughs> they're so amazing. They they've got brains that aren't sculpted that way and they will call their coach out if if they're given permission and empowered to do so, you know. Anyway, I I want to end on that. Um, I want to end that idea of neuroplasticity and myelination on a really hopeful note. And just the final third thing that Daniel um, Coyle argues is if you want to make a great athlete, then they need an empathic coach. The empathic coach is quiet. It's a total John Wooden. It's somebody who's, who tailors their way of speaking and directing and correcting mistakes, to every single different brain they're dealing with because they know the athletes so well and they care so much about them. If you come at a, an athlete like that, sky's the limit. They might they might not become a professional athlete, but they might become a remarkable human being in some capacity in the world. And your coaching is so important to them.
0: It's a really important point that that with the statistics in all sports being so low, the likelihood is your plan is to make a better person not to make an athlete or a superstar, but in the same way, you can also destroy an individual or an athlete or a superstar through the words you use, as you've said, and the language and the tone. And you also maybe get a little bit on, on body language because we've been reading body language for thousands of years before we were speaking. And these are, you know, automatic cues. So how else would the body language brush off on people in a, a sort of negative or, or a positive sense?
1: It's such an excellent question. Um one of the things that I learned um was people who've been very traumatized, they really struggle to look you in the eye. And that they might themselves be um just kind of trapped or paralyzed in their own response to abuse or they might have taken the aggressive, you know, identify with the aggressor response to abuse so that they become perpetrators, right? We as we all know, you respond to trauma with fight, flee, and freeze. And these are deeply ingrained, as you say, pre-language. It's how humanity survived. So these are deep evolutionary strategies that your brain uses when it thinks that you're in danger. So your brain never um, interprets 21st danger accurately. It's it's programmed anciently to respond to to trauma. So if you have to give a a public speech and you're incredibly terrified to do it and you feel awful, your brain thinks that you're faced with a saber-toothed tiger. So it's like, oh boy, you know, with this public speaking thing, you better just run away hundred miles an hour. And I'm going to pump cortisol and adrenaline up into your brain. I'm going to get your body going. I'm going to get your heart rate up. I'm going to pump up your blood pressure. We're going to get all of the blood out of your brain and put it into your body so you can run, or you can take your, 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 spear or whatever and and fight to the death or and this is the one that people tend to forget we're just gonna freeze we are not gonna move like a rabbit and the predator the saber-toothed tiger won't notice us so think about this with your kids you've got one kid who's really like outspoken aggressive maybe bullies the other kids is rude to you um whatever that kid is in a fight situation they they're trying to push back they don't feel secure then you've got the kid that doesn't show up to practice always comes late um misses games that kid's in a flight there's something haywire so that they don't feel safe either and you know trying to get to the bottom of this these things with kids can really help them then you've got the player that never says a word just serves quiet, love that kid. He's great. But you don't know that kid could also be in a lot of trouble and their silence and they're keeping their eyes down and they're just afraid that they're going to be noticed. That's freeze. So we want to watch for these hyper states that are brain states that are very, very physical. So what happens with our kids is in the 21st century, you are bombarded with stressful things and your brain cortisol level never goes down, you know, in the 21st century. This is why mental health is so much on the rise. You know, our kids are expected to be brilliant athletes. Oh, they have to be fabulous at school. Oh, they have to do their chores and they have to understand and navigate social media 24-7, etc. It's it's just too much for the brain. They don't get the breaks that they need and they don't get their cortisol levels lowered. Now, one of the most important things for us as as teachers and coaches and parents to understand is that we can teach kids the skills to lower their cortisol and their adrenaline and calm their brain down. And um, I don't have time to go into the neuroscience of that, but there's a lot of research that shows that one of the best ways to do that is fitness. That is an incredibly healthy, helpful, um, joyful thing for the brain to do, especially out in nature and especially doing kind of Uh, you know, like the sports is one of the best things. So your kids are already lucky because they're playing sports and hopefully it's joyful. And that's super good at lowering their stress levels. The the flip side of that is mindfulness. Mindfulness is, you know, as you know, it's an ancient practice, but it's incredibly good at lowering stress in the brain and getting kids to use their breathing and their slow breathing to tell the brain there isn't a saber tooth tiger here. I just have to give a presentation to class or I just have to show something on the field to my coach. Not a big deal. I'm in control of this brain. Don't worry. I got this and you're safe. So I just want to end off on, I know I'm going on and on and on, but I just have one final, really important thing I want to say. Um, One of the things I learned was that the brain is hypersensitive to being ignored. So if, if you ask the teacher a question, the teacher asks like you a- acts like you didn't speak and they ignore you or you ask your you know you'll see a kid in the store trying to get their parents' attention, their parents on the phone and, and the kid is getting more and more ramped up and more and more frantic. Um, the brain is having a really bad reaction to that. Our brains are programmed for social connection and they are programmed for especially having the powerful adults in our world reflect us and see us and and be our oxygen. And when, when the brain gets cut off from that, it panics because the brain knows it can't survive without the tribe. And so the more we create tribe around our kids at all times in their lives, we don't ever let them get to be loners. We don't ever let them be bullied in high school. Like, no, there's nothing more important than your kid being connected to you as a parent, coach, teacher, and to their peers. And so, um, you know, we have to be careful, like I used to be ashamed to say, I used to think it was very funny, roll my eyes with my teenagers, you know, I've now read that seen by the brain is a highly aggressive behavior by a powerful adult. So I don't do it anymore. You know, I try not to, I'm a bit of an eye roller, but, you know, it's just learning these things and then trying to, trying to apply the science so that we can be our best selves for our kids
0: on the on the coaching and the sort of teaching way things that are coming to my mind when we're in these stress states would be like the double breath inhale and inhale again let it out slowly let you know the carbon dioxide in that let the, the rhythm change in the body other coping strategies would be in terms of football is, is stare at the goal but try and not see the goal try and see the whole fence behind you or the whole trees try and allow that ability for your vision to open up and what it's moving me on to to thinking about what you're talking about is the the redhead head sort of energy point system I use with it, the lads I coach so redhead as you've described frustrated angry fight flight freeze can't think can't process bluehead being the opposite to that I also add in a sort of energy point system you know to sort of help them along the journey you play for 60 minutes you get 60 energy points it's not I have to stress, because they take everything so literally, this is not you know, factual, this is just a story, an idea. But every time you lose control of your emotions or you don't reflect positively on a mistake, you lose an energy point. You lose five or six, final five minutes of the game, you're running on empty. And then as the season goes on, you evolve it to building them up through teamwork, building them up through effort. So being completely selfish here and making this about me for a wee bit, what do you think are the sort of redhead, blue head, the uh, adolescent brain, and, and everything that comes in on what I've kind of said there?
1: I think that's absolutely brilliant. I think that's so valuable. We go. See you, later. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know who it reminds me of. Um, it sounds so much. I don't know if you've ever read Phil Jackson's work, um, basketball coach. Basketball. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. He has a beautiful book that you would love that. I mean, he's doing what you're doing. Um, It's called sacred hoops. And he worked a lot with a mindfulness coach named George Mumford and George Mumford worked, you know, he worked with the late Kobe Bryant. He worked with Michael Jordan and he taught them exactly what you're teaching because what you're showing, what you're showing these young men is that they're the ones that actually make decisions about how their brain is responding in the moment they're the ones that make decisions around their energy levels, and you know, either being, you know, full of energy and bringing their best selves, or or being very depleted. And then, what do they need to replenish? Like these are such great things. And um, you know, George Mumford he talks about flow and how an athlete in a flow state, a mindfulness state, they don't even hear the sixty thousand people in the audience. They they don't hear or feel anything. They are in an elevated Um, brain performance mode where all they feel and see is the court, their team, the love they have for the team, the love they have for the game. The coach is, is no longer with them in that moment. He's created or she's created the conditions whereby during the game, they're in flow. And it's so fascinating to hear, you know, athletes talk about what that's like. It's kind of the greatest gift you can give them. And I think when you talk about redhead where you you're not mindful you're thinking about oh I made a mistake or that guy stole the ball from me or I looked like a jerk or you know so and so it's their fault or all of these crazy things that happen when when something goes wrong that fixation is pulling you backwards you're thinking about what's happened and that's irrelevant like once the past happens it happens like the great athletes yeah they let it go because they're in flow all you can ever do is be present You know, and that's going to shape your future much more positively, according to research, than than being fixated on the past. So, I mean, as you and I talked about too, Johnny, the idea of redhead, I love that idea for adolescents to know that, I mean, you know, we teach them to drive in these artificial conditions. They've got the driving instructor with them and they're driving perfectly like when they drive with their mom. But that doesn't set them up for hot cognition or redhead moments. And the adolescent brain gets tripped up by that and in danger a lot because it it doesn't anticipate what to do when it gets a redhead moment. And the best thing to do is mindfulness. So all our kids, when they get in the car, what I would love them to do is pull out the photograph they have of the people that they love and take a good hard look at it. And then do deep breathing exercises before they turn the key in the car because their brain is going to make them want to speed. Their brain is going to make them want to take risks. Their brain is going to make them do anything for a reward, and especially if a peer is watching. That's all research based, and they can't help it. It's evolution, it's endocrinology, it's how the brain is programmed to develop because evolution wanted these young brains to leave the family cave and be curious and go out onto the Savannah and look around the corner and find another tribe, find a mate and procreate. That's all the brain is trying to do. It has no concept that these kids are in cars, none. So these are the types of things I, I really want us to share with our young people because it can save their lives. And I mean, without getting too heavy, um, Our kids are at most risk for dying four times more than in childhood, four times more than in adulthood when they are adolescents up to the age of 24. 13 to 24 is the most dangerous time to be alive. And we have to put in the safety around them to protect them and teach them the techniques they need to know to manage this very changeable adolescent brain. I
0: love it. And we're we're time pressed, unfortunately for for me, I must say. Probably fortunate for you, because I would be I'd be chirping at you all day long. And it's evening here and morning for you. I realise your day is just starting. So I'm going to get you out here on one last little bit. And it's sort of the that terrible term, the clickbait. The what is the headline to your new book and your work that's going to get the common person? to buy in and not just somebody like myself and the people we're linked in on the Friday tags on Twitter regarding who are pushing for lifelong learning. What's going to get the general person off their seat?
1: Um, I think that we live in a society where people want to be healthy. All of us want to be our most healthy selves. And as you and I've talked about, for whatever reason, we leave the brain out of that equation. So if we want holistic health in our lives, if we want to be our strongest, most empowered, most effective selves, most high-performing, then we have to include our brain in our health journey. And so The Bullied Brain, Heal Your Scars and Restore Your Health is a book that gives you really practical applications. It's written for the general reader, and it gives you practical strategies, once you've heard some of the science, what you can do over the course of these chapters, all these different stages to ensure that you you are attaining health and well-being and that you can share that with the kids in your life.
0: I love it. And we remember the most the first thing and the last thing. And the last thing I want to leave everyone is is, is when you referenced that bullying has the same effect as concussions do. And I, I really want to thank you for coming on. I'm going through the book and, and I'm loving it. And I wish you all the best in the future. And hopefully we'll reconnect on our on the way.
1: Thank you so much for having me. And I would be more than delighted to come back. You and I could talk all day about this stuff, apparently. Luckily for your viewers, you have to go.
0: I know. I <laughs> Thank you great. so much,
1: Johnny. Take good care.
0: Thank you all for listening. Again, the focus of today's conversation was to try and build a foundation to build upon with a new approach to bullying on the horizon. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please give us a shout on Twitter. You can email myself at playtraingrow at gmail.com. Thank you very much goodbye.